We're continuing our sermon series in the book of Galatians. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a paper Bible, but you'd like to look at one, uh, and if you're not sure where Galatians is, it's on page 569 uh, in the Bible underneath a seat in front of you uh, or in your row. Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 this morning. I think we only have four uh, sermons left in the book of Galatians, and uh, that will lead us right into um, Easter and Palm Sunday. And at that time, uh, I'm going to do a small series that will take us uh, into Memorial Day, uh, studying um, the seven I Am statements of Jesus. Uh, we walked through the book of Mark. Uh, it's usually our rhythm to pick a book and to stick with it uh, for as long as we can. Uh, and uh, for the previous two years, uh, during this time of year, we worked through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we worked through an Old Testament book in the summer and in the fall, and, uh, and then um, alternate between Old Testament and New Testament. So as soon as we're done with Galatians, we will jump into the I Am statements uh, from the Gospel of John, and we'll uh, take a look at those statements from uh, Easter into uh, the Memorial Day uh, weekend. And then during the summer, we typically look at Proverbs and Psalms, and so we'll continue you uh, with that same rhythm and routine. But for now, we're uh, finishing up in the book of Galatians, and we are in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Let's read our text together this morning. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace." For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that as you send out the snow and the rain to water the earth and to accomplish the purpose for which you send it, so also is your word that you send out in its season. The word that we are considering today, I pray that you would use for your purpose and for your glory, that we might not submit again to a yoke of slavery, but that we might walk in the freedom that Jesus Christ purchased for us on the cross. Would you grant us the grace and the mercy to walk with you and not to go back to a yoke of slavery? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past week, I read an article about uh, the top five American citizens that defected into North Korea. It's a random switch to go from one of the, uh, arguably, the most free nation in the world to a nation with the least amount of freedoms. A couple of those men stood out to me. A man named Joseph White in 1982 was an army infantryman, and he was stationed in South Korea. And one night he shot the lock off of a demilitarized zone gate and slipped into the north. Joseph White was quickly captured and seized and placed before cameras where he was told to denounce the corruptness and the hedonism of the United States. And if all the correspondence is to be believed from him and from others, he soon landed a job in North Korea as a school teacher and became very happy there. But two years later, his body mysteriously disappeared and he was thought to have drowned while fishing. Another guy named James Joseph Dresnock left America to become, of all things, an actor in North Korea. He starred as a, his role as Arthur, the evil American, in all of the North Korean propaganda films. Why did he defect to the North? This is a quote from him. He said, I was fed up with my childhood and my marriage and my military life and everything, so I went into North Korea. He said the army, uh, I'm sorry, the article says the army was not too upset about his defection. According to his military records, he was a chronic complainer who was lazy and defiant to authority. Since his defection, three government-provided women in North Korea were married to him, and he seems to have enjoyed his life in the kingdom of the Kims. And what is probably the weirdest fact in this article is that you can follow Dresnok on Twitter. I went back to his Twitter feed. He died just a couple years ago. And every one of them seems um, like somebody else wrote it. He says, even an American like me is feeling great sorrow at the loss of Kim Jong-il and extends sympathy and goodwill to Kim Jong-un. He also said in 2010, I'm feeling very welcome about the new addition to our leadership and to the positive developments politically and economically. All of his tweets seemed to be propaganda, but it was so bizarre to be able to read all of these tweets and to 
trying to figure out why would somebody leave America or any place that enjoys its freedoms to go to a place of slavery. I got on a North Korea educational kick this week and looked into way too much, spent way too much time learning more about North Korea than I ever wanted to. Uh, but most sad uh, uh, of all the things that I learned this week was of one of the concentration camps uh, that houses 10 to 20,000 prisoners of war or political defectors and some of the treatment that they receive uh, there in North Korea. But it begs the question, why would you leave America for North Korea? At the same time, why would anyone leave the freedom that Jesus Christ provides by the cross to go back to slavery to sin. Last week, Larry came forward uh, at the end of our service and shared about his uncle Merle, who in his later years became a Christ follower and understood the gospel and, and gave testimony here on this stage about his late conversion in his 80s and repented of his what Larry described was he was a bird dog for the local bishop, meaning that he pointed to people, uh, pointed people out when they were disobedient to the church and to the subculture. I heard all week many people reacting to Larry's testimony, uh, many people coming up and sharing with me how they had been hurt by a strict legalistic culture that's inconsistent with the gospel message that has set us free from legalism. I heard stories about what clothes people should wear, about what color garments were acceptable, about how your hair should look if you're a man or a woman, if you wore wedding rings or not, if someone decided that you weren't modest enough if you wore a head covering or not, and how often, things that you watched, clothes that you wore, rules that you followed. Listen, legalism is implementing rules that go beyond the gospel message for the purpose of being acceptable to God. Have you ever been hurt by legalism? Has someone ever come to you and confronted you about something that is not necessarily biblical or even gospel? but as a part of a subculture? Why would anyone go back to an impossible system if they knew that it would not gain any approval by God? If you couldn't please God by your actions, why would you go back and try to gain His approval through works? This is the message of Galatians. And if Galatians is the book about freedom in Christ, Galatians 5.1 is its anthem for freedom. Christ has set us free. Paul is telling them, stand firm therefore and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. But what kind of freedom is he talking about? Did Christ set us free so that we could live in any way that we choose? Did Christ set you free so that you could walk in your flesh? Did he give you freedom to go wherever you choose, to say whatever you choose, to act however you choose? What does Paul mean by the freedom that Jesus Christ purchased for you? He means freedom from slavery to sin. The Bible says that 
before you met Christ, before you came to faith in Jesus, that you were a slave. That you were a slave to sin, meaning when temptation struck, you had no alternative in your life to deny temptation. You only had opportunity to walk in sin. You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. I don't think I gave in to every temptation I ever had. And that's not the point. The point is that you never had the alternative to not sin because you were born in sin and sin affected everything that you do, all of your motives, all of your desires, everything that you worshiped, everything was completely saturated in a sinful heart. So every action that you did, even your own morality, even your own works of righteousness that you thought would bring pleasure to God, instead made you uh, a slave to sin. In John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, Jesus is talking to the Jews, and it says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. Every time I read that, I think, well, didn't you read Exodus? Don't you know about the Egyptian slavery? But anyway, they said, we've never been a slave to anybody. How is it that you can say that we will become free? And listen to Jesus' words in John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus came to set us free from slavery to sin. But Jesus also came to set us free from legalism. It's worth the time to flip over to Acts chapter 15. If you turn to the left, just a few books, you'll find the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 15, recorded for us, and can be pinpointed to about 15 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, in the early church formation we read about a conflict that was taking place between faithful Jews who had given their life to Jesus and were following him, and then they were being uh, thrust together in fellowship in congregations all around Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all parts of, of where the gospel had penetrated up until that point. And as they were fellowshipping together, there became arguments and confusion amongst the churches as to the role of the Mosaic law. Do we impose on the Gentile believers? How much do we impose on them? Uh, how much of Moses should they follow? Do they need to follow the dietary laws? Do they need to follow the worship laws? Do they need to follow the Sabbath laws? Do they need to follow through with circumcision and all these other things? In Acts 15, it's called the Jerusalem Council we find how they dealt with this issue. Chapter 15, But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. See what they did? They're preaching that Jesus is good, but Jesus is not enough to save you. 
you must also obey the laws of Moses. This is what has troubled the Galatian churches as well. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they uh, came to Jerusalem and they were welcomed. Uh, Verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. That's the predicament. That's the predicament they faced is that there was great confusion in the congregations And it didn't end here in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Later, Paul established the churches in the region of Galatia. And everywhere he would go and preach the gospel, the group called the Judaizers would come behind him and they would say, Jesus is fine and it's good for you to accept Jesus, but unless you obey Moses, you cannot be saved. But back to Acts 15.6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to Acts 11, when Cornelius and his whole household get saved, and before he can even get the gospel message out, they receive the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they are regenerate, made new, these Gentiles. So Peter says, verse 8, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and he made no distinction between us who are Jews and them who are not. He cleansed their hearts by faith. That's the point of Galatians is that it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone that a person can be saved and not by works. Not by works. Peter continues, verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You know what a yoke is? A yoke is a piece of wood that's fashioned in such a way as to be uh, placed upon the neck of an oxen, a pair of oxen. Is that the right word? (laughs) Yeah, an ox, an oxen. Um, Don't know the plural for oxen all of a sudden. They placed this yoke on the back and and they would use that um, to enable them to pull a heavy weight or to carry a heavy weight. Uh, A a yoke would be um, representative of something heavy, a burden to them. Peter is acknowledging we couldn't follow the law and and we we didn't have um, righteousness before God because we tried to follow the law. We failed at it. As a matter of fact, Galatians 4 says that the, the law was our schoolmaster. It was a guardian. It taught us that we could not be pleasing to God through works of the law. So Peter's saying, so now why are we putting God to the test by trying to enforce the Mosaic law and put it on the necks of their disciples, which neither we have been able to bear nor our fathers? Verse 11, Acts 15. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as he related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. You need to know um, Acts 15. It's an important place in the Bible. It's an important decision that the early church came to within 15 years of the ascension of Jesus Christ that dictated what Gentile believers, those of us in this room who are not Jews by birth and our relationship to the law is that we don't have to keep it because for freedom, Christ has set you free. You are free not to be um, involved in a legalistic culture. You were called for freedom. Paul furthers the argument. Look down back at Galatians chapter 5 and and in verses 2 through 4. Paul makes this argument against going to legalism. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that's just shorthand for the Mosaic law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Can you imagine saying that Jesus is of no advantage to you? Jesus is not a blessing to you. He's not on your side. There's no favor with God. Not even Jesus himself can can help you or be of any advantage to you if you're trying to please God through works. He says in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that is the Mosaic law, that he is now obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Fallen away from grace. Have you ever felt like you fell from grace? The beauty of the cross, the beauty of the gospel is that no sin that you could commit could remove you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Your sins, past, present, and future, if you're in Christ, have set you free from the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The grace of God in Christ means that you cannot be cut off from Christ. But if you reject Jesus for a gospel of works... Paul says, you're obligated now to keep the whole law. You're cut off from Jesus and you have fallen away from grace. What does it mean to fall from grace? Is he saying that we shall lose our salvation? Or is he saying that we were never saved to begin with? My study Bible notes says that Paul is not discussing here the question of whether a genuine believer can lose his or her salvation. He is only saying that people who may once have made a profession of faith, if they now are truly seeking to be justified by the law, must not really have had a relationship with Christ and have fallen away from the grace that was offered to them and available to them. That's consistent with the message of 1 John that says that those who have walked away from us, those who have walked away from faith in Jesus were never really of us in the first place. Meaning that in a room like this, there are people who are seeking to earn God's favor through their own righteousness, through their own morality, and through their own behaviors, thinking that they can please God if they just check enough boxes. 
If I just do enough, give enough, serve enough, uh, if I just go enough, if I, if I do all that I can, God will finally be pleased with me and I can be saved. That works-based mentality, Paul says, cuts you off from the grace of Christ and you fall away from the grace that is offered to you. Then he shows the difference for those who are truly in Christ. Verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. What does that mean, the hope of righteousness? There are two alternative explanations. One, we wait for the hope of righteousness means that Christians don't try to perfect righteousness on their own, by their own efforts. Their hope is not in themselves, meaning through faith, by the Spirit, their hope is that Jesus Christ and His righteousness will be conferred upon them. That, that in Christ, God looks at you and He sees you as righteous before Him. Not because of anything you did, but because of what Jesus did. That's the hope of righteousness. An alternative explanation is that the hope of righteousness refers to the believer's hope and expectation that God will declare them righteous at the final judgment. Again, not based on anything that you will do, but based on what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Look at verses 7 through 9. Paul chastises them saying, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's basically saying you were doing well. You were walking with God. You accepted Jesus by grace through faith. You were saved. Now these people have come in and they've confused you with their message. It's a great word picture. You were running well. You can picture someone exercising and running and then stumbling. I don't know how many of you are runners. I've gone through phases in my life where I'm running. Now I'm currently not in that phase. Uh, but I remember one time I was running maybe four or five years ago through my neighborhood. And, and I used to start really slow and, and then work up to a, a faster pace. And this particular morning was early. It was maybe six o'clock in the morning and it was cold. And I was uh, starting and at my normal slow pace and I ran for a block or two and then I increased my pace and then I ran for another block or two. And, and as I was feeling great, Ah, I'm hitting that stride. I tripped over a raised part of the concrete on the sidewalk. And I stumbled for like five or six steps trying to regain my balance, but I couldn't. And, and I knew I was going to go down. And I saw some trash cans off to the side. And I just sort of dove sideways into the trash cans and, and took both of them out and rolled into the street. I mean, it was like an epic fall. <laughs> I got up, there was trash everywhere. I scraped up my hands and I just looked around and I thought, I, I hope somebody saw that. I really do, because that was a really good fall. I hope somebody checks their ring footage or something because it was really funny to see. I was running well, I did great, but then I stumbled. And we can kind of identify with that, can't we? The Galatians were doing well, but then came the Judaizers and their run turned into a jog and their jog turned into a walk. And then they became persuaded, not by God, but by the Judaizers. And they were confused. All of a sudden, the things that the Judaizers were saying started to make sense. 
Okay, maybe God does want me to, uh, to be uh, obeying the Mosaic law. And, and all of a sudden, what they were hearing started to make sense and it started to confuse them. Paul said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What does that mean? It's a favorite metaphor of Jesus uh, using uh, this idea of yeast, that it just takes a little bit of yeast to uh, leaven an entire lump of dough. It doesn't take much. If you just add a little bit, the entire dough will be affected by that yeast. Paul is helping us understand how an entire group of people, or in this case, an entire region of churches, can be negatively influenced by one person with bad theology. You've heard it before. You may have even seen it in your own life or in your own groups or in your own small groups. A little bit of a, of a false idea comes in and begins to take a foothold and people are persuaded and small groups break up and, and whole churches can be um, thwarted from the mission and from good theology and from the doctrine of Christ and the gospel and turned away just by a little bit of influence. Have you ever been doing well and then stumbled? Have you had periods in your life when you're walking with Jesus and doing well, and then all of a sudden you were sidetracked? Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 uses this running metaphor and says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us lay that aside and run with endurance the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, looking to Jesus, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 tells us to lay aside the things that keep us from running well. In my situation, watch out for cracks in the sidewalk, right? Watch out for trash cans and obstacles along the way. And to run with a passionate focus and a determined view, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Look at verses 10 through 12. Paul is convinced that his argument is effective. He's saying, I have confidence in the Lord that you won't take another view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So a lot to unpack here. He's saying that there will be a penalty given to the one who is troubling you. What kind of penalty? What kind of penalty will there be for the Judaizer? Well, if Paul had his way, that last sentence tells you it would be a harsh penalty. I'm not going to, it's a little R-rated. I'm not going to tell you what the words mean there uh, for children in the room, but Paul wishes bodily harm on them, and he wishes that that penalty would be that severe. Is Paul wishing bodily harm on the moral, legalistic Judaizers? Let me make this point really clear, because I think it has immediate application for parents, for children, for students, seeking friends, uh, seeking a partner in life, and for us in who we allow to influence us. 
there is a real danger in our perception of another person's relative moral goodness and its appeal or attractiveness to us, especially when divorced from faith in Jesus. And let me say it again. There is a real danger in our perception of another person's relative moral goodness and its appeal or attractiveness to us. Meaning, as a parent, you see somebody that your kid is hanging out with and you say, oh, that's such a good kid. But divorced from faith in Jesus, their relative moral goodness is not an advantage that you should seek. Your son or daughter wants to date somebody. Oh, they're such a moral person, a really good person. Apart from faith in Jesus, there is a danger in our perception of that person's moral relative goodness apart from Christ. A person could be moral and an idolater. A person could be moral and believe or reject Jesus altogether and deceive you by morality. Listen close, young people especially. Run with those who are pursuing Jesus Christ. Not moral perfection, not goodness, not legalism, and not moralism. Someone pursuing Jesus will increasingly look like Jesus. And the person who is pursuing Jesus and becoming like Jesus is who you should be with. Parents, listen up. Encourage your kids to surround themselves with peers that are pursuing Jesus, however imperfectly it may seem to you. You want someone who is pursuing Jesus by faith in Jesus, not a perceived moral goodness divorced from faith in Jesus. A moral, righteous-looking idolater, full of pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency, is a different kind of evil, but Jesus calls it evil. Look at Matthew 7, 21-23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will come to heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven, which is to have faith. That's the will of the Father, is that you would believe on Jesus. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will go to heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. And then many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? And didn't we, in your name, cast out demons? And, and didn't we live these moral lives? And Jesus says to them in Matthew 7, 23, away from me, evildoers, I never knew you. So what I'm telling you is that you can look at somebody who is outwardly righteous. Matthew 23, Jesus says seven woes on the Pharisees. And one of them is they look like whitewashed tombs. They're clean on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. Jesus unleashed his harshest, harshest condemnation toward the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Why? Why did Jesus call them evil? Because they were moral? Because they were self-righteous? Why? Because they thought that they could avoid the punishment of God through the means by which God chose to have them escape punishment. They thought they could reject Jesus and earn their salvation. And God provided the way of salvation through Jesus. And anyone who rejects the Son rejects the Father. You think you can earn your own righteousness? You think you can be good enough to get to heaven? 
Jesus says that that's the most evil thing a person can do, is to reject Jesus. Just read Matthew 23. Or listen to Cherie's teaching from Matthew uh, Matthew 23. So Paul's saying, why would they persecute me? Why would they persecute me if I'm preaching the message of circumcision? The cross is offensive. And let me tell you why the cross is offensive, especially to legalistic people. The cross is offensive. And I was talking to Dave Watson on the way um, this morning. I drove him over to his house. And on the way back, we were talking about this. And, and Dave and I just said, I just don't understand the appeal that a moral, legalistic person or a self-righteous person would have. Personally, I don't know that. Because I think I knew right away in my life that I was a sinner. Right? Like if you think of the prodigal son and the older brother, right? the, the older brother was was self-righteous and he was dutiful and he remained in the father's house and he, and he did everything that he could to please the father. But the younger brother, he was wild and rebellious and he, the Bible says he went and spent all of his money on prostitutes and on gambling in a faraway country away from the father. Listen, I identify with that guy. That's the conditions in which I was raised and I knew right away that I was a sinner and I persisted in sin. But I can't understand from a personal viewpoint the one who stays in the Father's house, who still wants the inheritance of the Father, but the only person left outside of the Father's banquet at the end of the parable is who? It's the older brother. He's cut off from the banquet. He's cut off from the Father. Why? Because of his self-righteous, legalistic attitude that said, I've done everything you told me to do, and you've never once blessed me with a goat to celebrate with my, my, my sons. But when this son of yours who has um, given himself the wild living comes back, you forgive him, and I can't understand that. The older brother is outside of the banquet. And you say, well, maybe he, you know, maybe you don't know the end of the story. Maybe he came back and maybe he saw, this is a parable. Jesus is making it up. He can tell the story and end it however he wants. And it's over. And it's over with the older brother outside of the banquet. The cross is so offensive to legalistic people. Because no one wants to face the reality that Jesus' death on the cross was necessary to pay for your sins. You know that? Have you ever watched the, um, you see portrayals of the crucifixion? I mean, I remember watching Mel Gibson's movie um, at a premiere. And just um, in Dallas, there were 6,000 people invited to this. And, and the guy who played Jesus came up afterward and talked for two or three hours. But we all sat there and we watched the whole movie together. And it was just, I never wanted to watch it again. I watched it once and I thought, I never want to see that ever again. The brutality, um, the portrayal of the bits and all the things that were in the whips and the spitting and the thorns and the crucifixion and the nails, all that stuff was, it was too much for me to watch. It was, it was so much, but, but the picture holds that if you see the brutality of the cross, this is why the cross is offensive. It's offensive because that was necessary to save you. And a self-righteous person says, no way, I'm not that bad of a, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm good. Jesus didn't have to die, the cross is for somebody else, not for me. That's why the cross is offensive. Jesus said uh, that this stone will, upon whom it falls will be crushed, 
But if you fall upon it, you will be crushed in, in Peter. And he's describing the fact that those who are humble enough to acknowledge their own sin and need for Jesus' death on the cross, they're broken by that and they receive the grace and mercy. But to those who reject their sin warranted that kind of a death, meaning you think you're a good enough person, you don't need the cross, that's offensive to you because you thought you were a good person. And we're all good people compared to the next guy, right? But we're not comparing ourselves to the next guy. We're comparing ourselves to the Holy One, to the Righteous One. And you can't compare with His holiness. All right, let's finish this passage in verses 13 through 15. He says, You were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. All right, so if you're called to be free, how should you use your freedom? Should you use your freedom to walk any way that you want, to, to live the life that you used to live, to go and do the things that you used to do, to, to say anything that you want? Paul says, absolutely not. The person who has received the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ will be so grateful that they will want to express their freedom in love and servanthood, a servanthood mentality toward others. If you want to be legalistic, verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's how you should use your freedom. You're called to be free. Use your freedom to serve somebody and to love somebody well. And then he gives probably the greatest description of a legalistic culture there is in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. You want to know what a legalistic culture looks like? It's biting and devouring. Oh, you said that, or you didn't dress this way, or you have a tattoo on your face, or uh, your hair is below your neckline, or you have all that sort of legalistic culture is just nipping at one another. And listen, there is no life in that at all. Those of you from a legalistic culture, those of you who are from a strict, divorced from the gospel, but live a certain way, it is stifling. I, I, I can't even think how anybody could walk in a, a non-gospel legalistic culture. Because in the end, a legalistic culture bites and devours and consumes people. It, it is carnage everywhere. The stories I heard this week, people just willingly coming forward and telling me how glad they are that they're away from a legalistic culture. There's no life there. There's no joy. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no kindness. It's a cold, dark place where legalism, apart from the gospel, abounds. And it's a system that God opposes, and it cannot coexist with the gospel. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have set us free from this yoke of slavery that neither the Jews nor the disciples nor any of us could ever thrive in this environment. We thank you that through Christ Jesus you have set us free from the law of sin and death. You've set us free from a legalistic culture that prompts us to be good enough to earn your favor. 
And you've set us free in such a way that we're so grateful for you releasing us from bondage that now we desire to use our freedom to love each other well and to serve each other well and to fill the rest of our life with good works, not to earn salvation, but because of salvation. Our life now is long to be an expression of pursuing Christ Jesus, not self-righteousness, not legalism. Our life is to be set up in such a way that we, we call out legalism where it rears its ugly head, as we also call out rebellious sin when it rears its ugly head. Let us walk in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and let us express to one another love and servanthood in such a way that screams we have been set free and if the sun sets us free, then we shall be free indeed. Never to go back. It's my prayer this morning that you would grant repentance as I've prayed every week, every passage in Galatians, I've prayed for a number of people who are enslaved to morality and to legalism as a means by which they may be acceptable to you, Father. Would you give them repentance? Would you cause them to repent of self-righteousness and works and to fall on the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, to see themselves in such a way that they understand that the cross was necessary for their salvation. A few weeks ago, I baptized Isla and she said, I knew that I needed Jesus. I knew that Jesus didn't just die for everybody, but that he died for me and I needed him. The faith of a child and thank you for the example of Isla and the work you did in her heart. And may it be the same that applies to all of us that we know how much we need you. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Help us to see ourselves as sinful, that Christ would be sweet. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.